Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. From the News and Views, I'm your host, Rob Schofield. As we discussed last week on News and Views, a recent special investigation by NC Policy Watch investigative reporter Lisa Sorg tells the remarkable and maddening story of an abandoned missile factory in the city of Burlington that continues to emit toxic chemicals into an adjacent neighborhood and serve as a dangerous all-purpose public nuisance years after it closed. What's more, federal, state, and local officials, as well as the property's private investors, have done next to nothing. In the aftermath of Sorg's report, however, there is some hope that the situation could start to change. And earlier this week, I caught up with a public official who wants to make that happen, the newly elected state legislator whose district includes the affected neighborhood, State Representative Ricky Hurtado. Welcome to News and Views. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot I want to talk to you about today, but I guess I want to start with this big story from your district that's been in the news of late. And that's this story that our own NC Policy Watch reporter, Lisa Sorg, her investigation into this dilapidated former army missile factory in Burlington. It's it's really an amazing and maddening story of sort of malfeasance and neglect. And it's a real threat to the health and well-being of the community that you represent. And a lot of folks who live in that community probably didn't even know about it until this report came out. Talk to us about it and sort of your assessment of this situation. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think this story is actually a gift to the community. A lot of people didn't realize what was happening in Burlington and in the county at large. This is a well-known facility. I mean, if you drive in East Burlington, it's a monstrosity of a facility. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, literally a formal missile plant. You You can't miss it, right? People know it as Western Electric. A lot of families know family members who worked there in the past. And so a lot of the community has a rich history with this building, uh, especially when it was a a former textile mill. But I think what people don't recognize is the negative environmental impact that it's had in the community, even nonprofit community leaders, people who care deeply about issues impacting East Burlington and marginalized communities in particular. When I brought it up, over the last few months, they said, wow, really? I, I had no idea. It's a conversation that I think is it's time to, to happen in a more holistic way here in the community. Well, we know that the, uh, according to Lisa's reporting, there is just a lot of toxic chemicals probably that are still there. We've also had squatters and vandals, and it truly is just a nuisance it's become at this point. And I know that there have at times been, and Lisa reported on this as well, that you know some people have had visions for renovating this place and making it an actual important and useful structure and facility in the community. But it just seems like everybody's kind of pointing fingers at who's responsible for this situation, the army, the federal government, the EPA, the state. What does a lowly state lawmaker do about a situation like this in his district? <laughs> well, well, like many things, I find myself with a platform and an ability to highlight something that the community is not talking about. I think you point to something that isn't fully recognized in this conversation, and it is the complexity of governance, right? There are a lot of players in this story. And how do you take care of a former federal facility, essentially, that was Mm -hmm. leased out to a research company that was producing secret missiles in the Cold War, which is, you know, a fascinating story in and of itself. How then does local and city 
incorporate into that equation of, of a cleanup and of economic development? How does the private property owner incorporate into this conversation? And I think most importantly, given that they're one of the main players, how does the federal government play into this? That is a part of the conversation where right now as the story's breaking, the community wants to understand who's at fault and who do we go to to fix this issue. My email, thanks to Lisa, has been blowing up. <laughs> but, I, but I'm glad that people are paying attention and saying, wait a minute, this isn't right. How do we fix this? And so I do think that it's important to recognize all the players and, and who has leverage here to, to move this ball forward, which in this case seems to be the army who is responsible for this cleanup, but also in conjunction with the property owner. I've spoken to city and county officials, and there is interest to move this cleanup forward to everyone sees this facility as a key to the economic vitality of East Burlington. And for folks that don't know Burlington, it is very much the story of a other side of the tracks part Mm -hmm. of town where it's been neglected for decades now and predominantly black and Latino and, and other historically marginalized communities that now live in in low income and working class neighborhoods. And this is where you find this facility. It's an easy topic to get really frustrated and mad about and say, Oh, here we go again. And, And I think that now this story breaking is actually a really great opportunity to revive this community conversation on how not do we not just develop this. So it, this region can economically prosper, but also how do we make sure we take care of the foundational issues such as the health and well-being of everyone in that community as well? You've probably actually talked to actual people literally who live yards away from this facility. I gather some of them maybe knew what it was and others didn't even really know what the heck was right next door to them because maybe they haven't lived in Burlington their whole lives and don't know that whole history. Yeah, that was exactly the story that I saw canvassing, actually, as I was running for office last year. Pre-COVID, I was knocking on a lot of doors, and East Burlington is in my district, and so I went to that neighborhood in particular, and remember talking to a lot of folks who had no idea what was even behind them and were pretty transient in nature, had just gotten there or were getting ready to leave, had a family member that they were staying there, mostly rentals there. There yeah. are a few families there that have lived there for, for for quite a bit now. And one of the community leaders that was highlighted in the piece, David Sproul, has been there for about 30 years, I believe. And he knows exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know him and his advocacy in the community, especially around environmental issues, you begin to understand why, because he knows how this has impacted not just himself, but his neighborhood as well. We'll be watching closely. I know Lisa Sorg will continue to report on it, and we we appreciate your advocacy and leadership on it and wish you all the best in bringing some sort of positive conclusion to this story. It's a remarkable one. We urge people no, to check you, it out. Thank you. This is all happening during a pandemic and during a time where you're serving your first term in the North Carolina General Assembly. It's been a remarkable year, I'm sure, for you. Um, Talk to us about this first year experience. We still continue to have a lot of gridlock at the General Assembly. Has it been, have there been any highs, lows, frustrations? What really stands out? It's certainly been a year unlike any other. I think that this whole freshman class on both sides of the aisle can say that. I think between unique budget negotiations, we'll call it that, that look different than previous years where the governor looks like should get a seat at the table here at the tail end of the conversations a redistricting year where we get to redraw maps after census numbers drops. 
But at the very beginning of this whole session, we started off in a pandemic where we didn't even have access to a vaccine. And so it was ghost town in the General Assembly, no one in the building, a lot of things happening remotely um, via Zoom, meetings happening via Zoom committee meetings in particular. And so it this experience has been uh, a, a steeper learning curve, I, I will dare say, than, than other legislators and figuring out how do you effectively do your job, but also build relationships in a position that really is dependent on, on social and relational capital to get things done. You mentioned the Cooper perhaps actually participating. What a thought. The governor actually participating in negotiations over the budget. Do you have some optimism that maybe we're going to get some sort of a negotiated budget. We haven't had one for years in North Carolina. The General Assembly's just sort of not wanted to negotiate with the governor. But uh, is there some inkling of hope that that's going to happen? We are, I guess, two and a half months into the fiscal year already. But uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And of course, there's a lot of speculation on where we are with budget negotiations. I do still hold on to hope that we can get to a place where the governor can sign a budget. I think there's broad understanding on both sides of the aisle. And I've heard this from members in my caucus, as well as, as on the other side of the aisle, that the unprecedented nature of the impact of COVID, um, where we are as a community, and the unprecedented amount of money that we have to spend, especially with dollars coming from the federal government, we can't afford not to pass a budget. And so I think it's really important to recognize not necessarily the politics of Raleigh, but the needs of the community. And when we center those, we know that we have to be investing effectively in public education. We have to be thinking about how we take care and recover from this pandemic. And I think passing a budget is is a first step there. That being said, um, I recognize that there's a lot of work still to be done. And that is why we need a bipartisan negotiation in order for this to move forward. And if our colleagues on the other side of the aisle are serious about taking care of the needs of North Carolinians, they'll make sure that the governor and our party leaders have a seat at the table before we come up to that last vote to uh, get a budget to the governor. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed that that actually happens. We're talking with State Representative Ricky Hurtado about a lot of issues, and we're getting already near the end of our time. I want to ask you, you mentioned the governor and the relationship with the General Assembly. Obviously, the the legislature has sent a handful, growing number of bills over to the governor's mansion that he has vetoed. Most recently, uh, the very controversial bill uh, that sought to uh, sort of censor and micromanage uh, educational curricula and uh, with an eye on race and the history of race in our state. Are the governor's vetoes likely to stand? Is there some any prospect that some Democrats might vote with Republicans to override? What, what's your assessment of that situation? I think you've seen broad agreement in both chambers around many of these really problematic pieces of legislation that had been vetoed by the governor. I mean, I think when you're talking about repealing pistol permits in North Carolina or politicizing education um, in the way that they try to with HB 324. God, there's what, six or seven bills at this point? Mm -hmm. I'm losing track of how many Mm -hmm. have been vetoed. You can tell that a lot of them are not serious bills and they're Mm -hmm. meant to politicize important issues in our community that we should really be thinking about solutions. And so when you think about what's been vetoed and what we're not talking about. Why why are we having a conversation around HB 324 when we haven't even come to any sort of conclusions on how we're going to handle the Leandro case in the General Assembly (laughs) and the funding of our public schools, especially in the midst of a pandemic? And so I do think that the governor's vetoes have been aimed at 
keeping our focus on solutions for the state as opposed to playing politics with our classrooms, with our teachers, students, and many other important issues to North Carolina. We'd be remiss if we didn't raise the issue of the pandemic. We just uh, published at NC Policy Watch this week new national polling results that shows that actually red and blue states alike, significant majorities do support vaccine mandates, support mask mandates in schools. But there obviously is a lot of resistance still to those ideas. Do you have a take on where that's headed in our state? Do you feel like people are finally coming around to the notion that we're going to have to do this to get through the pandemic? Or do you foresee a lot of conflict still ahead? I think in the short term, we're going to continue seeing a lot of conflict. But I think what is heartening to see is not just the polling data, but the conversations I'm hearing in the community. And people recognize that the only way to get out of this pandemic is through protecting our kids with masks in schools and getting the vaccine in our community. And so I think that means that looking at, you know, all strategies, all measures possible to make sure that we increase that vaccination rate. Uh, We've seen a, a bit of an uptick with things like the FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine. We've seen upticks when corporations pass vaccine mandates or even seeing health premiums skyrocket. And so I think that folks are doing their research, you know, addressing their hesitancy, but we continue to see that number increase. And so I do think this is the path we're on and it's actually the only path to get ourselves out of this mess of COVID-19. State Representative Ricky Hurtado of Alamance County, thank you so much for your service to our state. Thanks for being on News and Views, and we'll check in again perhaps later this fall and see how things are going. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up next, a reproductive health expert joins us to explain her deep concerns about the likely impacts of a new Texas anti-abortion law. Don't go away. 